Hi, this is Karina Ganters, host of Behind the Pen. You're listening to the audio podcast. Enjoy. Here, your host for Behind the Pen. I hope everyone is well. I am an award-winning author of 14 books, award-winning filmmaker. I am a podcaster, YouTuber, booktuber. I host uh, I, I host also assist on the Artist First Radio Network. I've got to write a script for this. I have so many accolades now. And I'm also um, running Author Assist, which helps authors with their marketing and promotion, everything from brainstorming an idea right through to marketing the final product. Behind the Pen is for anyone who holds a pen. You can be an author, a writer, an illustrator, a musician, an editor, a tattooist. I'll even go that far. Anyone who holds a pen. So today my guest is um, Gerald Jones. Uh, get your last name. Gerald, jo- Gerald Everett Jones. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. <laughs> you have to excuse me. I'm all over the place and take antibiotics from my tooth and my head is wee So um, we've talked before with this first time we've met but we've talked before so I know a little bit about you um my listeners and my uh viewers because we're doing both at the same time do not so um I know for a fact that uh your pen is used for writing you are an author and everyone can see who's watching now your book on the screen but um what else do you use your pen for because normally when you have that artistic blood in you it's not just one thing you could be uh an artist and uh an author but you concentrate more on your books than you do your drawing you could be a musician a singer you know so what is your hidden talent (laughs) well you know when I was a tween we didn't even call them that then (laughs) 10, 10 12 years old I did I did sketch compulsively and I I I would often I would sketch an illustration that I saw. I would see if I could get close to that. And I suppose I I had some talent for that. And then when I was in high school, I did paint. I I learned oil painting and I did exhibit in some places. And somehow somehow that submerged. And then uh, it was about, oh, I, I hesitate to say about 20 years ago, I was at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. And I've always had an interest in art. And I saw this enormous painting, 10 foot wide, The Baptism, which is 21 people in this Victorian parlor, um, a christening ceremony. Mm. And the plaque on the wall said that it is thought that this is a, a branch of the Vanderbilt family, but no one knows for sure. And I thought, this has got to be easy. 
okay, I'm a data driller. I'm going to research. I'm going to find this out. I thought it would take me about a month. Well, it took me the next 15 years. <laughs> now, oh my the, gosh. The, the, I will add, though, that this was during the era of, of email was just getting started on blue screen computers and we had fax machines. So, you know, I could probably, I could probably compress that research time these days, but I did, I, I, um, I did research it. I was going to do a nonfiction book. And the thing was there were enough gaps in the research and there was enough uncertainty that what I did was instead I wrote a novel bonfire of the Vanderbilts, which is about the secret that I, there's a hundred year old secret locked in this painting of why, why don't we know these are the Vanderbilts? Why, why, was, why was it that Cornelius Vanderbilt II really didn't want you and I to know that this was his family? And so I wrote a novel about that. Wow. And so, I mean, is that where your writing started or were you already uh, into creative writing? Oh, oh, no, I, I, I had, had a career... Uh, primarily as nonfiction and technical writer, I, I probably wrote more than 30 books under contract to publishing houses, things. I mean, my most successful book, I, I, I hesitate to say, uh, Excel for Windows Quick and Easy, <clears throat> you know, okay. bought, 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 bought me a good used car. Uh, but no, I, and I, I, I did, I actually have an award-winning nonfiction book, How to Lie with Charts, because Ooh, I was involved. Yes, I saw that. I saw I was that on Amazon. Business graphics. I was, and that book actually is still taught at Georgetown, I believe. Uh, so, if there are politicians misleading us to their charts, then it might be my fault. So, <laughs> but then, but then I did, um, and I ha I had a big name, what you would call a big name agent. They, they had represented oh, Chicken Soup for the Soul, Dos for Dummies, mm. you know, that, some of these big titles, for, but nonfiction. And when I informed the agency that I wanted to concentrate primarily on fiction, their response was, have a nice life, kid. <laughs> so that's how I ended up with my own publishing imprint. And I have since that time published um, 12 novels, of which wow. the, one you, the one you see here, Preacher Raises the Dead, is the third in a series. And it is my, as I say, it's my 12th novel uh so and and of those books uh three of them have won major awards and that's the total award count as of last week was 14 i'd won 14 wow. awards in the last two years including um uh top awards in mystery which is the preacher series and also in literary fiction that's that's awesome. That's fantastic. Um, over over the span, I mean, twelve books. It, from the first book to the the one that's just come out, how long are we talking? How many years? Probably about fifteen. About you know, when I wrote nonfiction books, I would usually have like four contracts going at a time. So I would write like four books a year, which is about as much as I can wow. you know, do, do full time. Um, I, I haven't written fiction at exactly that pace. Uh, some of them have taken, I mean, the, the book about the Vanderbilts, Bonfire of the Vanderbilts took me, as I say, took me years. Um, the actual writing took me about four or five months once I, once I had it all together. And I would yeah. say typically, a book will take me two to six months to write. So 
um, and and I, I work pretty much full time these days. So uh, that that's that's my pace. And I I I will say also one of the things I've discovered, and I may have shared this with you last time, is that since I started concentrating on fiction, you know, in the old days for nonfiction, I wrote to an outline and I had a supervising editor. And if I had to depart from the outline, I begged for permission and I had to argue why. All right. Now that I write fiction, I begin with a blank page and I may have a suggestion of an outline. I may kind of know where I want it to go. I might certainly know that maybe I want to know the topics I wanted to explore. For example, Preacher Raises the Dead had had two books before that. Those characters were already on stage. I just had to suit them up and encourage them. And they really kind of spoke what they wanted to say and they went where they wanted to go. But on, the, on this third book, the only thing I really knew was I wanted to treat near-death experience as a topic. And it turns out that there is very serious medical research going on these days, notably at the University of Virginia, uh, on actually gathering medical metrics on people who have survived heart attacks and, and have been revived after and coma and stroke and have been revived after uh, long after they should have expired. And so they're measuring things like what percentage of people saw white light? How many saw their relatives? How many have lost their fear of death? Uh, you know, all these, all these, there is some commonality to some of them. And yet, you know, there are medical explanations, there are medical theories, not necessarily mm -hmm. explanations, there are medical theories about why this occurs. It could be the brain works on oxygen and glucose. So ordinarily after your heart stops and you can't be revived, you've got about seven, your brain has about seven minutes. Now, are you conscious during that time? Nobody really, you may, nobody really knows what goes on in the brain during that time. But um, the people who've come back after that length of time and been fully functional, that's supposed to be a medical impossibility. But it could be that there's enough glucose and oxygen trapped up there at the time already the to okay, keep the possibility. Yeah. And then the, the, this idea of seeing the white light, you know, um, if you remember uh, 2001 Space Odyssey, when, when the astronaut is putting the computer to death, okay, he's unplugging Hal. <laughs> okay, how the, the, the consciousness just shrinks yeah, I... and shrinks and shrinks to the mo most primitive parts of the brain. It could very well be that that white light is the the um, the the individual's memory of the actual birth experience of of coming into the light from uh -huh. from the womb, and this this may be the earliest and the most primitive memory. That might be a way to explain it. Except that most of us come out head first, <laughs> and you're not really moving toward the light. So. Um, you know, it's, it's a fascinating. And, and, you know, I also have, you know, my main character is this uh, uh, agnostic minister, if you will. He's a fellow who has an inquiring mind and doubts, but people to come to him with his pro with problems. And at, in this book, it's right at the outbreak of COVID and it's in a small farm town. And um, he, he reluctantly steps into the role of full-time minister because the uh, the fellow who's been his mentor, the this wise African American uh, senior fellow, uh, decides he's going to retire. He says, "Evan, you're the guy for the job. I just can't handle this anymore." 
and especially with all this breaking out and heaven realizes not only do i not want to do this but i've got to do visitations i've got i've got to go to hospitals and visit the sick and the dying not only do i have to preside over weddings i have to preside over all these funerals and so the spoiler alert but i mean one of the first things that happens in this book is he goes into the hospital to visit somebody finds out she's been she's expired already okay but then while he's there he says oh well i'm too late then and the nurse comes out and says well actually not because now she's sitting up and talking <laughs> so right away we've got i mean that, that's 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 the wonderful thing about writing without a plan is that i write to surprise myself and we do yeah I'm the same. I'm not a plotter. Yeah, yeah. The planning and, and is see, done in the head. So it's these plots the are not are not are not predictable because my rule is always make the interesting choice, mm -hmm. always make the unexpected choice, always make a choice that's got serious consequences. Consequences. Because yeah. of course that causes the plot to unfold in the rest of the book. This is what I do when when as I, as I said, I'm a I'm a pantser as well. I don't plot. I, I might write something down that I need to remember to keep the consistency of, of of something, but it's all up there. The characters are there. The plots there. The storylines there. They tell me. They tell you what they want to do, who they are, where they're going, what the story is about. You listen to them because if you don't, you're in trouble. <laughs> and, and you and 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 that's how the book's made but i always start my books off with a conflict because that's course, the yeah. page turner that's the page turner you get them to turn the page and find out why that happened and what the conclusion is to that conflict and that's how i always start my books off i don't know where i'm going after that conflict until i've written it and then i know the next part and the next scene and the next scene after that <laughs> and it's, it's putting the, the exciting things together and getting some glue and making sure they stick together and they flow so i'm writing scene after scene after scene i have a dream i get up in the morning that's my next scene and they don't they don't match together that they, they, they do after but i have to that's the hardest part for me is I've got all these amazing scenes and then I've got to somehow glue them together and, and so they flow. But that's the way I work and I've been doing that for 15 books now for 27 years. So um, it works, but I mean, how how do you process? How do, what is your, your, your process for writing? Well, I, one of my other hidden talents <laughs> was i i trained as an actor in college and, uh, i knew that was coming <laughs> i trained as an actor and and actually later i studied uh, as a director and i i wrote some non-fiction books with a director colleague on 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 digital film production wow. technology which i got into but but as an actor it took me a while to realize and i think it I think part of it had to do with the disappointment of not getting work as an actor <laughs> was that you know as an author i get to play all the parts we do and i don't have to wait for that script to show up in my hands that's written by somebody else that oh this is me now how much how long does rough finds or or uh or or any 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 reputable classic actor have to wait 
to find that part, have his agent present him with that part that goes, this is the one I really want to do. And it was a very early lesson for me that playing the villain was so much more interesting than playing the hero. <laughs> okay, and I found, and of course, part of being an actor is internalizing, finding parts of your personality that if you were allowed, if you were to allow them to be expressed on a daily basis, you don't recognize who that person is. You know, it's, the not, Joker, it's your ego. You know, it's your what, alter what a bill, ego. What, what a brilliant yeah. performance. How exactly how Joaquin Phoenix had to go so deep to find mm. the Joker. Um, yeah. And yet, and yet that is his that is a part of his psyche. That's a genuine yeah. part of his psyche that he found. And that's one of the reasons that actors can become, you know, so disturbed, if you will, is that they, we, they, they can we do the same moored from 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 who they really Yeah, we have to, to go as as authors, especially when we're doing um a very um dramatic or dark scene whether it's a, um, a murder or or um, a torture like I do in my books at the moment you go to a dark place you need to go there to get that scene out I mean sometimes it's hard to to step out of that but as authors we do have to go into that dark place to play that villain we need to experience what he's feeling what he's doing to whoever we we need to to be that um and to get it out so that when the reader reads it they become the villain and they understand <laughs> what's going on and they have these uh feelings of these characters it's not just us portraying the protagonist and the villain and the the best friend and what have you we go through that we go through that every single character we are that character also, if we do the, if we do, if we write correctly, if we're good authors, then when soon as they open that page, they're in that story, they're in that scene, they can picture it like a film rolling, and they become all the characters as well. And I, I think it, like you said, going from acting, doing that, and basically we do the same thing in our books. We act as our characters it's uh well the other crucial skill that i that i think came upon me i i think i discovered it by degrees is what john le carre calls the close observer you know his he his his books are set in the world of of spies and intrigue mm. and of course he uses close observer to describe the mission of the spy and, you know, George Smiley, this uh, nondescript, uh, humble, middle-aged, uh, beleaguered fellow who's this brilliant spy, you know, he can tell you the license plate of every car that he, that he passes on, on, on his walk home, just because that's the way his mind, that's the way mind works. has been trained. But one of the marvelous things about Le Carre is that the reader is a close observer that is what it is to be a, a reader and in training you to be a close observer in training you to think the way george smiley thinks in his books lacare actually trains you to be a better reader and a better mm -hmm. observer of the world and in even in terms of like 
reading between the lines those lines. things that are not actually there but it's like yeah you've got, yeah not and one of the things about writing is you yes readers want to be surprised and they want to you, they want you to make promises twists. to them yeah they love twists and and they want the <laughs> promises to pay off and they want to know that turning the page they're going to not only find an answer to that question mm -hmm. but they're going to find a, so many more other intriguing things that flow from it but the but the thing about le carré is that he will bury the significant parts of the plot that that really would be foreboding if you will mm. okay he bury those you know that will be one of only half you're, he'll describe the objects on a tabletop okay one of those is really significant but he's described them all in detail the way you would if you looked there okay mm -hmm. and you 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 begin to realize if I don't pay attention to every one of those, if I don't just carry those uh, memories in, in my mind through the rest of the book, I am going to miss something. I'm going to, I'm going to go back and go, I should have known that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, well, that's, that sounds really difficult to do something like that. I mean, and I you know have to about... let your subconscious, you have to let your yeah. subconscious go. And that that's really how it works because uh, often, especially on these uh, the Evan Wycliffe mysteries, the preacher books, on every one of them, there are things happening on the last page that I had no idea that they were going to occur until I actually wrote those words. And I, I that's not just a fantasy of mine. I've had reviewers tell me, you know, I, one, of, one of my dear author colleagues, uh, John Rachel, who also writes mysteries, he said, I did, I, it wasn't a quadruple take, it was, it was a quintuple take. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that word is, he said, I was just, I, I was so bewildered I, when I, but I was so, so delighted that I couldn't have figured it out. Yeah, I mean, I, I get the reviews where they say, um, I thought I knew what was happening. And then she goes and throws a spanner in the works, turns everything <laughs> upside down. And I didn't know what was happening. And well, I, I, need, love the, I love doing that. You do need to know what's happening. There is a level where, and Hitchcock called it the the plausibles. The, 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 there there is a level where the and this is you know truth is truth is stranger than fiction because you know you need you you do fiction has to make sense. Okay, so so the reader's got to accept that these circumstances exist exist yeah. that that this character would pursue that unworthy mm -hmm. or stupid or or mistaken goal. Uh, but but after that, then yes, those surprises, and I think one of the things that um, uh, again coming back to promises uh, that was part of uh, Dan Brown's advice. I, I watched his masterclass, and I just assumed that um, you know I knew him to be a writer of cliffhangers, and I enjoyed his cliffhangers, mm -hmm. and I thought, okay, they're probably he's probably got a, like a formula, and he's going to tell me about how to back some characters into a small mm. space and fill it with water. And, <laughs> and, and that was not the case at all. The gem that I took from his advice was, he said, be continually making promises to the reader, never stop making promises. And he said, and, and, uh, and the way that I apply that is, at the end of a chapter, don't think of a chapter as a short story. A chat, you shouldn't be able to pull a chapter out and submit it as a short story because a short mm. story has a resolution, has an end. Of course. Okay. And as much as you might be tempted to have that person 
put down the phone and curse or or stomp out of the room or or, or somehow put a button on that scene resist that temptation okay create create that expectation of almost as if you were to say tune in next week and you'll find out you'll find out what, what happens next week Please do you know turn the page the, the twists that I, I have a, a short story flash fiction collection and nearly everyone has got a twist and especially at the end where the reader's like holy I didn't <laughs> what happened you know I've got like w h f on some of my reviews you know because they've just been blown away but the thing is i don't realize that i've done that i don't deliberately they say <laughs> oh how do you make these twists up i don't i just write and it happens it just this is what the character wants to do that's the last line the character is going to say and it's going to blow you away but i don't realize I don't deliberately put a twist in stories. It just comes so naturally. It comes from an attitude and it comes from, you have, a, you have an attitude to expect the unexpected and you have an openness where you don't reject things that seem a little bit oddball or, I mean, you may, I've often put in a detail midway through a book and I don't know why it's there, but I just felt as though it, it had to be. And then somehow it figures in later, it pays off, it, it plugs into something. And I think that that, again, is, you know, the French writer Stendhal, and we're talking about 1814, something like that, the red and the black, and the, 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 the red being the clergy and the black being the military. Um, the, the, the Red and the Black was said to be one of the first psychological novels because he includes the thought processes of these characters that are speaking in their heads. And Stendhal, at one point in the book, the, the main character has been a somewhat of a scheming priest in the rural area, and he, he moves to Paris, where he learns to be even more of a schemer. <laughs> and Stendhal says, now you know, the people in Paris are actually wiser than the people in the rural areas, not because they're smarter, but because they've read novels. And, <laughs> and then he explains that's because they see evil characters and evil doing in novels and they see the consequences. The people in the rural areas don't know not, not to try that. <laughs> because yes they've got their bible lessons but they didn't pay attention to those and the church tells them they can't read the bible themselves in catholic church back then um so yeah stendhal said uh, <laughs> you're smarter if you're and yes that really goes to the heart of what storytelling is mm -hmm. you know we're sharing these stories and we're saying now be careful what you ask for because <laughs> you'll get it <laughs> And, and, and as a race, I think we, we become wiser that way. I certainly, I think we become more compassionate that way. Mm. I mean, there, there is that theory. If you read, um, uh, Jeffrey Eugenides, the marriage plot, which is all about, does the old Jane Austen plot of the woman has to marry the rich man. Does that still work? 
That's what that book is about. Well, there are there are a few there are a few bimbos out there that go for the oldest rich men. There's a genre called the billionaire love story, which I won't get started on. It might be the only book. My Fifty Shades of Grey might be the only book I ever returned to Amazon, not because it was yes. But because it was just so terrible, the rip off of the story. That's why it became a number one bestseller. That's why the film came out was because it had so many bad reviews for the writing, for the <laughs> plot, for everything that happened in the book, and it became famous for bad reviews. But I didn't understand why so many of my feminist friends loved this book. Okay, and then I realized that it was guilty pleasure. It was, <laughs> this is all the stuff I'm not supposed to want, not supposed to like, not supposed. And of course, it's, again, it's, it's that storytelling of, okay, here we have a simulation of what could happen in the real world, but we're, we're also seeing and experiencing vicariously what these consequences might be, so... Um, 50, 50 Shades was, was like an introduction to readers about B, uh, BDSM because there weren't any books about it. They weren't, um, writers weren't writing such vivid and, and sexual fantasies and what went on with, with couples with the BDSM, even though it was happening around, no one would write about it, no one would talk about it. Oh, yeah. no, and I mean, 50 Shades. Happened since you know, the, since yeah, the I mean, thought, of course, it, exactly. But, it's been going on right, for, right, for right. And if, ages. But if you know, um, I don't know if, you, if you've seen the uh, Showtime series um, Billions. Billions, no. Billions, Billions has a subplot um, in the first season, not in the second season. But in the first season, one of the main characters who's played by Paul Giamatti um, is a masochist in his love relationship with his wife and the very go. i believe i believe that actually has the opening scene where he has a stiletto heel on his neck and yeah. we think oh my god he's in some house of ill repair and turns out he's in the bedroom at home yeah yeah it's um i mean I, i'm writing that now um that theme i do a dark romance and it has um explicit uh sexual scenes and uh, graphic violence in it um and the women love it <laughs> the women i have not sold as many books paperbacks ebooks until i bought out my dark romance i've had two books out now they've been my Amazing. bestsellers um the reviews just come in they know what they're gonna get so it's not like oh you know this is too much it should have had a trigger warning um they don't say that because <laughs> they know what they're getting they know what they're getting because they see the cover they read the blurb and they know straight away that it's going to be in your face it's very very dark and they absolutely love it they want to read that's amazing about the violence they want to read about how um, really graphic sexual scenes. Um, that is what's selling at the moment. It's, and it's because of Fifty Shades starting it all. Um, I, I wrote, uh, the reason my went dark was I was writing about mafias. I had the MI5 
I had the Greek mafia, the Italian mafia and the Russian mafia all in my book called Broken Chains, which was released in November. Now, if you're going to be real, if you're going to give it how it really is, then you're going to tell what goes on in, you know, down in those uh, in those rooms down in the basement when they're torturing people, when they're trying to get information whether it's a woman or a man, it happened. And I'm, I'm going to tell that. I don't hide behind that. I don't sugarcoat anything. Um, so my books are as realistic as they can be. Um, they're entertaining. They're dramatic. They go OTT for the entertainment value, but they are still realistic. What goes on with these... Uh, criminals, um, underground uh, criminal organisations. So, um, oh, it's absolutely so much fun to write. I loved every minute of getting into that dark space and, and writing it. But I didn't realise that the women out there wanted to read it. They are so, I don't know, it's, it's, I don't know what it is, whether it's their fantasy to be that character and to go through all that pain or whatever but they they just love it it's so strange i think it has <laughs> to do with it's liberating to step outside yourself and as i say visit these forbidden feelings if you will mm -hmm. i mean think you know i certainly i would never want to be a prisoner in an embassy in turkey and have fellows coming at me with knives um, yeah you know i i i i I can imagine what that, I mean, I can barely imagine what that, that, what terror that must have, have been, but that really happened. Yeah. And, you know, we, th there are certainly parts of our world that, that are, you know, if you, if you experience them as nonfiction, it would, it's, I mean, I, w I lived in Kenya for two years. I, I went there with, um, I followed my wife who was involved in wildlife conservation and child welfare. And, I wrote a novel, uh, Harry Harambee's Kenyan Sundowner, which is about a middle-class white, well, I made him a, a widow, a widower, um, going to Kenya. And one of the things that I encountered was just the extent of sex tourism. I mean, and, and it was very sophisticated, if you will. We're not talking about child trafficking. I never mm -hmm. saw anything like that. What I did see was middle-aged European men with attractive women who I would see day after day in the, Sounds like the Philippines, in, in the resort hotel, <laughs> Thailand, in, in, the, in the restaurant. So these are people who are actually taking a vacation together, whether they've hooked up there or somewhere else. Yeah. But then I also saw middle-aged women, school teachers, you know, school teachers from Europe. Okay. And here they are with their driver okay. <laughs> this fellow oh he's my bodyguard or you know him yeah he's my driver well yes but also what I, you're saving money because you shacked up in the same room in the hotel i mean I, and i saw you together i saw you both in the in the swimming pool last night at midnight i mean uh <laughs> you know and you wrote and that in your book you put it all in the, well he goes to kenya thinking he's you know he's he's been widowed for a couple of years uh he 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 really feels as though he's at the end of his life 
there's nothing real. And, and this Italian tour operator comes to him and says, you know, I package unique experiences for people of high net worth. <laughs> so I'll take you places and you'll, you know, you're, you're going, you're really, you're going to have a time. And so he goes to Kenya and, he, and it takes him, takes him, and he goes to uh, the, the resort town of Diani Beach, which is on the white sand there on the Indian Ocean. And there are hardly any more gorgeous places in the world than, than, than Diani, although it's a very small town and it's, it's not it's not necessarily a wealthy town, but it is a it's a place where there are marvelous resorts. And, and he, so he mm -hmm. goes there and it takes him about two days to realize he doesn't want any of that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> OK, that's just not who he is. He's not he's not an adventurer in that way okay he's set in his ways he looks forward to his meals um he's you know he, he doesn't really like physical exercise too much you know he likes to drink but you know doesn't want to pass out and what happens is he ends up meeting a middle-aged african woman who's been widowed and she's got a couple of teenage kids and they're attracted to each other and yet she's not willing to tell him everything about herself she's a twinkie oh, we call them she's, twinkies she's got layers <laughs> and layers and layers and it turns out she's involved she's it turns out she's had an ex-husband who was a uh a, a european perhaps not a billionaire because you, it, it's sufficient to be a millionaire in Kenya. <laughs> yeah, I suppose but, it is. But, yeah. you know, but, 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 but landowner, colonialist, whatever, that, that's one of her exes. And he's involved in geopolitical intrigue and somehow, so this, this mild-mannered tourist somehow finds himself at the center of Kenyan politics, wow. Kenyan business corruption, uh, and 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 uh, long story short, you know, we came back from Kenya right before COVID, and I often say, well, we came back because things got interesting in Kenya, and that had to do with governments and work permits and you know those legality paperwork, all that kind of thing. Well, when we came back to the United States, guess what? Things got even more interesting here. First, there was corruption like stories like you yeah. couldn't believe and i thought oh i'm in kenya again okay and, and, and then uh uh and then covid which of course brought out so many other um i won't say sleeping but other stresses that our our banking systems or our water supplies or our our or supermarket stocks or whatever um i think that if this goes on uh, those are the kinds of things that we may be living through, and I, 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 I mean, the money, the the, the petrol's gone up, the the electric is double, um, all because of this war. That's a, a little tiny country and a massive country trying to take back, because of course it belonged to Russia once upon a time, uh, and trying to take it back it has affected the whole world already and and it's only just started and like you said who knows what the the end when the when it will end and how it will end and what will be left and what will happen it's uh it's it's, it's a frightening scary and thing we see I mean, this in, you know we see this in fiction uh, uh you know there has been the the worldwide concern of course for um 
climate change. I mean, to you know, pick another mm -hmm. difficult subject, but it's yep. interesting to me how much of the popular um, entertainment, if you will, uh, now is going back to apocalyptic fiction. Um, you know, because there's we we want to somehow find a way to connect with our fears, and to to you know there there was there's you know there is this supposedly satirical movie don't look up which is about the the meteor uh, you know hitting the earth and um, you know nasa has said well <clears throat> there really is a, a, a planetary defense uh, project inside nasa but um they're fairly certain there's at least for the next hundred years we're probably okay um <laughs> which was but this movie was about that and that being perhaps a metaphor, they've said, you know, Leo DiCaprio and the people who are behind the movie, the, a metaphor for climate change. But then again, I was on, um, I believe it was uh, HBO. Uh, the um, I, I don't remember. I don't actually remember what streaming service it was, but there was a British TV series from recent years called Cobra, and I thought it was about cyber. I was very, I'm very interested in cyber because I have some familiarity with it. Might write a book on cyber, who knows? <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but it turns out COBRA is an acronym for a cyber command within the UK, fictional cyber command within the UK government. But it turns out the, the apocalyptic event there is a catastrophic solar flare, which of course oh, nice. has happened, which of course has happened before, but never yeah never with the impact that it might considering now how interconnected we are with cell phones and gps and, mm -hmm. and this is one of the one of the aspects of cyber that i think is really um not all that well understood is that yeah. an advanced an advanced civilization like the united states western europe because we're so dependent on that infrastructure it makes us extremely vulnerable to cyber Okay. You North, need to write this book. You need North, Gerald, North, you need to write Korea, this book. We if 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 we were to be attacked in a major way with cyber by North Korea, counterattacking them by cyber does nothing to them. Mm -hmm. They're not walk they're, they're that's, not they're that, not connected. Is not walking around no, welded they're to not their connected. Cell phones, okay? we, we have to we have to connect we have to disconnect. We we do. It's, uh, well, I don't it's... know that we. I don't know that we need to go back to being primitives. I mean, no, no, no. We rely too much. We, our, our life, our whole life, relies too much on technology, being connected to the web, being connected digitally. Uh, what we're doing right now. Well, you it's know, an evolution. I, I will say. You know, let, let let's 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 put on our other hat and say that. You know, it, it may be no coincidence. You know, human beings are the the most adaptable, the most intelligent species that ever existed in the universe. And you know, yes, it's possible we may be we may expire, but I think that it is no coincidence from the standpoint of collective unconscious that we have created the internet at exactly the time that we need to communicate globally. That that's the only chance we've got. Okay, so we have this. We have this planetary consciousness that's emerging and yes like any tool it's been exploited it's, it's been used taken it's been misused yeah but, yeah but ultimately the lessons that get learned from that 
Um, there's even the thinking in the scientific community that, um, you know, the hybrid race of the future that may be part artificial intelligence and part human. Scares it, hell it, me. It, it, they say it's actually started already. AI, you know, try, AI. Try to separate somebody from their yeah. phone. <laughs> I, AI scares the hell out of me, honestly. That, that frightens me more than, more than war. Um, that technology that's coming out even now um well maybe the thing to do is to write satire about it and then we can laugh yeah everybody that'll be the next it one is, is it's it? really it'll be scary so silly and so tragic I'll just, I'll just make humor out of it My i was first... going to ask you what you're doing next i mean what are you working on next what what well, are I'm you planning on, a, on i'm working on a fairly serious literary fiction um book called jonathan's journal and it's about a a closeted fellow, not not sexually, but but just physically, you know, during lockdown, he's isolated in his apartment. He's he's something of an introvert anyway. So, I mean, it's it's not really any big sacrifice for him to stay home. Uh -huh. but he, he finds in his closet a literally in his closet, a an antique diary that was in his mother's estate. And the diary is handwritten, meticulously handwritten. And it turns out it's from 1918. And it's the diary of a British soldier during World War I. Now, he doesn't think that this was a relative. Uh, his mother never said anything. He thinks that she, this is just a curio that she picked up. You know, she was something of a collector. And, but the thing that's really intriguing, and this is this is a real, I actually own this diary. I mean, the, the real, it, it really, it's, it's public domain now, okay? <laughs> uh, 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 it's an anonymous diary and it's been a hundred years. So <laughs> anyhow, um, this soldier, this British soldier meticulously wrote down all his experiences in the military, the British army for two years. He volunteered, but he was assigned to the Middle East and then to India. Now, who knew? I was never taught in school that the world that World War One had anything to do with the Middle East, and yet everything that's going on today, in terms of what happened in Iraq, what happened in Afghanistan, these are all the places where the British Empire had been before, and I am learning about the fact that. That, that Kaiser Bill during World War I was going to build a railway from Berlin to Baghdad. Hmm. Now, and that goes right through where you live. Mm. Okay, Karina, the railroad was going to go from Berlin to Baghdad. Well, what was that going to do? If it, if it was extended from Baghdad down to Basra, which is the port city at the tip of what is Iraq today, then what does that do? That bypasses the Suez Canal completely. And it goes far enough inland that British gunboats wouldn't be able to shoot those trains. So the, the British thinking, okay, well, we own the Suez Canal. We and the French, we're going to control all the traffic between Europe and the Far East. Well, the Germans were trying to put, were trying to cut away around that. And so the Germans and the Turks, your, your neighbors, the Turks, were fighting in present day in, in what is today Iraq. They were fighting to build that railway between Berlin and Basra. And you learned about that from the diary. From that, I knew nothing about it and the diary. And yet this fellow 
the thing, the other thing about the diary, and I, the thing I wanted to bring out in this book was that this, my main character in the present, uh, Jonathan, who's who's reading this diary, and you know he reads some and he interprets some and he researches some and then he reads some. So we're invested, we're diving into this diary as he is. Mm-hmm. But I wanted the reader to learn as much about Jonathan's flaws of character <laughs> as Jonathan is learning about this other fellow's seeming coldness, Aristo attitude, colonial prejudices. Uh, you know, I mean, it, yeah. it, it, it's, it's very clear to us today the arrogance of that particular military force and what they were doing. Um, I, it took me a long time in, I mean, uh, in Kenya to realize that people had, oh, colonialism, you know, it's all black and white racism and white and black racism. No, actually, that's that's not what you experience in, in East Africa these days. Uh, white colonialism is kind of so yesterday. There are not that many um, the white colonialists that are in Kenya today are trying to make it the new Silicon Valley. They're investors. They're, <laughs> you know, they're, they're not colonialists from that standpoint. They may be bankers. But, um, but one of the things I learned was that the tribalism in Kenya, there's 43 different African tribes in Kenya. And there are only three of those and three prominent families that have ruled that country since independence you know, a a few decades ago. That's where the racism and the rivalry is in that country. These days, they'll, 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 they'll tell you their bitterness about, you know, that, uh, that, that rival ethnic society much more than they'll ever come. I mean, they're not going to complain about a white tourist. They're just going to say, by the way, uh, our money's in your pocket. (laughs) And that's fine because, you know. (laughs) And we're we're happy (laughs) with that. Yeah. Well, you're welcome. So, you're welcome here. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, take a the, seat, uh, have a drink. <laughs> the, the idea of racism, and and this was something that I found in uh, you know because of uh, Harry Harambe's Kenyan Sundowner, the interviews that I did when I came back, I did quite a few interviews with African American radio hosts, and my publicist uh, at the time warned me. She said, "That's kind of a third rail, you know. You go you go starting about that, and then people are going to criticize that you're writing about things you don't know." And I said, "No, that's actually turns out not to be the case. Is that many of those hosts agreed with me right away, and they said, "Yes, I have black friends in the United States who they think they're going to take a safari trip to Africa, and they think they're going home." Well, yes, literally all of us are going home if we go to the Rift Valley of Africa. Every single one of us came, came from the Rift Valley of Africa. But uh, if but you're not necessarily going, you're you're going to be greeted as other. You're not necessarily going to be greeted as African. And and it, 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 I have South African colleagues who tell me that in the nightclubs that cater to the college kids in Johannesburg and in Cape Town, uh, if you're from a different part of Africa, they're not gonna let you in that club, okay? And, you, and your skin could be just as dark as there, yeah. okay? But you've yeah. got the wrong accent, you're wearing the wrong clothes, you, right. you're not known. It's not about color anymore, it's, it's about, yeah. it's yeah. about, yeah. 
Go, so yeah. we all have those lessons. We all have those lessons to learn. And yet when we can re when we can all embrace a story where, okay, this character happens to be African-American, but I can understand where he's coming from because I've been there before. Mm. Okay. I have, I have felt that kind of indifference mm -hmm. or I have felt invisible in a room or I, I have, you know, when I was in school, you know, I was teased because I was, I, I was, okay, like being a dark skin color. I was the shortest kid in the class. Okay. But I was also the smartest kid in the class. So those were two reasons to kick me after school. Okay. Mm -hmm. And those were, those was another reason never to pick, to always pick me last for the softball team. Okay, so I, so yes, okay, I, nobody, beat me, nobody, beat me with a, <laughs> nobody beat me with a cane, but I can understand, I can begin to understand how the, those, the experiences that I make, that I'm encountering in a book. Mm. Well, Gerald, um, where can people find all these amazing 12 novels that you've written? <laughs> they're, they're all in the book list on GeraldEverettJones.com. That's Everett with two T's, Gerald with a G. And I use the middle name because there are just a few other Gerald Jones writers. I bet there's a few, yeah. <laughs> and so if, if you actually type in my full name, um, I believe most of the I believe most of the search results are me. Uh, I've, I've, been, I've been at this for a while. Good. And every time Good. I do something like this, of course, there's another post. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been like 27 years. If I put my name into Google, it's like 57,000 things come up, you know, what I've yes, been doing. Yeah, and you, you've all buried, that way you've buried, your, your recent ones have buried all the negative ones. So, yeah. so good, good job. Good job. You know, when you see it was something you did like 10 years ago and it, the book cover was absolutely awful. And you were like, why did I do that? And you're saying basically the same thing that you said before. Uh, 10 years ago and uh, it's it's weird to look at uh, some of the old uh, interviews and uh, even the readings I did from my book so many years ago it's crazy crazy how much uh, you can get done in, in so much time um, get well, your and, name and out there get your topics, books out there you know as we've discussed and we've hit on a lot of subjects here but a lot of topics yesterday that were just completely not allowed uh have have blossomed and become popular but i'll actually go the opposite way one of the my as i say my first series of books the rollo hempel misadventures were were, were a, a series of three satires they were they were basically what you call skirt chasing comedies you know young man <laughs> and my my mentor if you will my literary model was Peter DeVries, who I, I think not a lot of people knew about. He was a New Yorker editor and he wrote quite a lot of satirical uh, books about, about sex and also about religion because he was from a conservative religion. But he wrote a book, uh, I'll use this example. He wrote a book called Slouching Toward Kalamazoo. Now that is a, that is a parody of, the, of Slouching Toward Bethlehem. Uh, but slouching toward Kalamazoo, the plot of that book is a mature white female school teacher has an affair with her 
15-year-old student. Mm. And that was meant as a comedy in the 1960s. You can't <laughs> write that book today. You literally cannot write that book today. Okay, so so um, literary it, it's, yeah. You know, it's weird yeah, every, that every now and then they want to ban Huckleberry Finn and, you know. Yeah, I know. I, I don't understand that. I mean, uh, LGBTQ and, and everything is, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's in the books now. People know about it. People don't care about it anymore. Um, they've stopped the bigotry. They've stopped the race, uh, the uh, homophobic. There's still homophobics out there, but it's not like it was. And... And, and they, there's so many books with, with those characters in. And um, with me, with my dark romance and getting really um, explicit in everything, you couldn't do that years ago. Now you can. But I've been, I, I'm working with a, another author on my dystopian sci-fi. And there's a scene where he's 16, she's 14. They're really, really good friends and he's leaving. And... In when we first wrote it, he kissed her. But now that we're doing an edit on it and we're thinking, no, we can't have that. She's too young. He, he's, you know, paedophile. People are going to complain about that. You know, and it's, it's so silly that years ago you could do it and nobody would think anything about it. But now you've got to be so careful about what you write because of people taking offense or people um, seeing something that isn't there, you know, and we, we said together as, as, as co-authors that, you know, we've got to change this because it can't, we can't have it like that anymore. And it's just, a, it's, it's a, you know, it's so weird that something. Well, I think you have to do what they did during the, um, during the era of motion picture censorship, uh, you know, the Hayes Code in Hollywood is, you know, you have the, the characters, you have, you, know, you have the unmarried characters walk into a room and close the door. I mean, you know, Ernst Lubitsch was um, a, a brilliant at, 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 you know, implication. I mean, there, you know, there was the, there was the king who goes into his wife's uh, bedroom and uh, he spends the morning with her. And he comes, he comes out of the bedroom and he's going down the stairs and he's putting his sword belt back on. And it turns out it's too small for his waist. Oops. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> There's not a word spoken, but that, that is genius. And that it does force you into, in some ways, it's, it's more delicious to see it occur that way because then the expression on his face on that the way that actor that discovery and that chill that runs up yeah. and down his spine and you've got to yeah. go oh wow is she oh she's in she's, for it now yeah 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 okay well it's been fabulous chatting with you and we've we've talked about everything and Glad it's we been, only stuck to one subject yeah yeah you can't you can't there's so much there's so much to talk about with when it comes to writing, um, the art of writing, about our books, how we feel as writers, and and how it the world around us affects us as writers. So many people like yourself have COVID mentioned in their books now, and in twenty years, 
people are going to read that and they're going to remember how things were and and so so many new books that are coming out especially sci-fi of course have covid in them now and uh, so it's everything around around us affects us with our writing and, and what we're writing avoid, about i don't think you can avoid it i've had i've, you had, can. I've heard i've ha had other authors and publishers say i've even read some articles that say oh nobody wants to read about lockdown everybody wants it to be over 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 well the same was, I'm sure, true of the Nazi occupation of France during World War II. But, you know, if I were Albert Camus writing in the middle of that period, you know, not mentioning what was going on is, is just, is just ignorant. I couldn't, I mean, I, I, I see um, authors doing children's books that are talking about the virus. And, and you know, I, I, I couldn't buy that for my child. I couldn't read it. If there was a novel that just sort of mentioned a little bit about it okay if there was a novel all about it i don't want to read that right now i want to, i want maybe in 10 years i will pick it up but i don't want to read it now because i'm i'm going through it why would i want to you know read about what i'm actually going through that that's my that's how i feel well, in, you don't know what my, the context you is. know i mean you know i in jonathan's journal i i've also you know now that it's pretty clear that you know the book <clears throat> won't be out for at the at the very least later this year um it seems as though it would be impossible not to uh to mention uh, ukraine and the fact that that is part of his lived experience mm -hmm. during the time that he's inside that it goes yeah from and it was actually the almost literally the day that los angeles county said you don't have to wear a mask anymore that that putin stormed into ukraine so i mean these are this is a timeline that really can't be, can't be ignored so no it's not not in the book that context. you're writing no it doesn't have to yeah. all the book doesn't have to be entirely about that it no of course that, not i i think that we i i really don't to the extent that we can, I think we shouldn't censor ourselves, especially since the, the the daily stresses and emotions that we have do grow from our lived experience, and and I don't think we should walk away from them. I think mm -hmm. because I don't think that our I don't think our readers can walk away from them either. I, yes. but they will, to the extent that they find a catharsis in, oh, that felt so good and. Or you know, I, I was so I was so glad I experienced that. I mean, it may, it's, mm -hmm. it may not be a happy ending. It may be, it may be a, a cathartic ending. It may be a lesson learned. It may be a bitterness that okay, the main character experienced it, but vicariously I experienced it too. And it's like, yeah, yeah, no, um, it, it, it's sad that it worked out that way. But uh, you know, is isn't the sun beautiful this morning? You know? <laughs> turn the, turn the uh, negative into a positive. That's how I see it. Whatever happens, we have to deal with it. We get on with it. Um, with the, nothing we can do about it. So we just have to get on and, and do the best we can with what we have. Um, it's an absolute pleasure, like I said, uh, having you and chatting with you. And I wish you all the best with the preacher raises the dead and with Jonathan's uh Jonathan's is it called Jonathan's journey Jonathan's journal yes jo Jonathan's journey that sounds absolutely fascinating I wish you all the best with that and uh have you started it yet or are you just thinking yes I, well I 
on word count, I'd say I'm a third done with it, but I, I, that's a very risky thing to say. Well, no, I mean, for those that know, it's always the first draft. It's, it's the, just the bare bones. The first draft is the bare bones. So uh, just keep yeah, writing about, and get it 30, out. 000, there's about 30,000 words there, but I, you know, I, every morning I wake up and I go, uh, do I rework this before I go forward or do I just go forward? No, you go forward. <laughs> you get all that down first and then you come back to it later. But but yeah, write and, and get it all out. Don't, don't worry about how messed up it is. Just get everything out. Do the first draft and then you can tidy it up after. Um, again, thank you so much for being a guest, Gerald, and uh, all the best with everything. Karina, it's been a joy, and you're and you're you're a, you're a charming, generous, and 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 an ebullient host. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.